Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Michael Barrison, who is charged with the attempted murders of Lauren Kanarek and Robert Goodwin in Long Valley, New Jersey. Kanarek was struck in the chest by two bullets from Barrison's weapon, and as it was undisputed that Barrison fired those shots, his legal team argued that he was not guilty because he was legally insane at the time of the shooting. In our last episode, we began our look at the instructions offered to the Barrison trial jury by Judge Stephen Taylor regarding how to apply the law to their determination of the facts in deciding whether Michael Barrison is guilty of the charges beyond a reasonable doubt. On today's installment, we conclude that examination as we move on to look at Judge Taylor's final instructions regarding the firearm charges against the defendant, as well as his guidance with respect to the defendant's plea of insanity. That's all coming up right after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. We concluded our last episode with a look at Judge Stephen Taylor's review of how the jury should apply the law to the facts in deliberating the lesser charges of aggravated assault against Michael Barrison. We begin today with an examination of Judge Taylor's instructions on how the jury should apply the laws to the facts in deliberating the firearm charges against the defendant. We're going to move on now, excuse me, to the third and fourth counts of the indictment that charged the defendant Michael Barrison with the crime of possession of a firearm with a purpose to use it unlawfully against the purpose, the property of the person, excuse me, against the person or property of another. Count three of the indictment charges in relevant part. The grand jurors of the state of New Jersey for the county of Morris upon their oaths present Michael Barrison on or about August 7, 2019 in the township of Washington, in the county of Morris, knowingly and unlawfully did possess a certain weapon, to wit, a Ruger 9mm handgun, with a purpose to use it unlawfully against the person or property of Lauren Canarac, contrary to the provisions of NJS 2C colon 39-4A1, and against a piece of this state, the government, and dignity of the same. Count four of the indictment charges the same crime, but as it pertains and uses the same language, the only difference is count four pertains to the use of the firearm unlawfully against the person or property of Robert Goodwin, contrary to the same provisions as listed in count three. The relevant statute on which this count of the indictment is based reads in pertinent part as follows. Any person who has in his possession any firearm with a purpose to use it unlawfully against the person or property of another is guilty of a crime. In order for you to find a defendant guilty of this charge, the state has the burden of proving beyond a reasonable doubt each of the following four elements. Number one, exhibit S-177 in evidence is a, fire, is a firearm. <coughs> Excuse me. Number two, 
the defendant possessed the firearm. Number three, the defendant possessed the firearm with the purpose to use it against the person or property of another. And number four, the defendant's purpose was to use the firearm unlawfully. The first element the state must prove beyond a reasonable doubt is that Exhibit S-177 is a firearm. A firearm means any handgun, rifle, shotgun, machine gun, automatic or semi-automatic rifle, or any gun, device, or instrument in the nature of a weapon from which may be fired or ejected any solid projectable, projectable ball, slug, pellet, missile, or bullet, or any gas, vapor, or other noxious thing by means of a cartridge or shell or by the action of an explosive or the igniting of flammable or explosive substances. It shall also include, without limitation, any firearm which is in the nature of an air gun, spring gun, or pistol, or other weapon of a similar nature in which the propelling force is a spring, elastic band, carbon dioxide, compressed or other gas or vapor, air or compressed air, or is ignited by compressed air, and ejecting a bullet, or missile smaller than three-eighths of an inch in diameter with sufficient force to injure a person. The second element that the state must prove beyond a reasonable doubt is that the defendant possessed the firearm. To possess an item under the law, one must have a knowing, intentional control of that item accompanied by knowledge of its character. So, a person who possesses an item, such as a firearm, must know or be aware that he possesses it, and he must know what it is that he possesses or controls, that is, a firearm. Possession cannot merely be a passing control, fleeting or uncertain in its nature. In other words, to possess an item, one must knowingly procure or receive an item or be aware of his control thereof for a sufficient period of time to have been able to relinquish his control if he chose to do so. The state must prove beyond a reasonable doubt that a possessor acted knowingly in possessing the item. A person acts knowingly with respect to the nature of his conduct or the attendant circumstances. If he is aware that his conduct is of that nature or that such circumstances exist, or he is aware of the high probability of their existence. A person acts knowingly as to a result of his conduct if he is aware that it is practically certain that his conduct will cause such a result, knowing with knowledge or equivalent terms have the same meaning. Knowledge is a condition of the mind. It cannot be seen. It can only be determined by inferences from conduct, words, or acts. Therefore, it is not necessary for the state to produce witnesses to testify that a particular defendant, for example, stated, for example, that he acted with knowledge, where he had control over a particular thing. It is within your power to find that proof of knowledge has been furnished beyond a reasonable doubt by inference, which may give arise, which may arise, excuse me, from the nature of the acts and the surrounding circumstances. A person may possess a firearm even though it is not physically on his person at the time of the arrest, if he had, in fact, at some point prior to his arrest, had control over it. Possession means a conscious, knowing possession, either actual or constructive. A person is in actual possession of an item when he first knows what it is, that is, he has knowledge of its character, and second, knowingly has it on his person at a given time. 
The law recognizes that possession may be constructive instead of actual. A person with knowledge of its character knowingly has direct physical control over an item at a given time is an actual possession of it. Constructive possession means possession in which the possessor does not physically have the item on his or her person, but is aware that the item is present and is able to and has the intention to exercise control over it. So someone who has knowledge of the character of an item and knowingly has both the power and the intention at a given time to exercise control over it, either directly or through another person or persons, is then in constructive possession of that item. The third element that the state must prove beyond a reasonable doubt is that the defendant's purpose in possessing the firearm was to use it against the person or property of another. Purpose is a condition of the mind which cannot be seen and can only be determined by inferences from words, conduct, or acts. In determining the defendant's purpose in possessing the firearm, you may consider that a person acts purposely with respect to the nature of his conduct or a result of his conduct, conduct if it is his conscious object to engage in conduct of that nature or to cause such a result. That is, a person acts purposely if he means to act in a certain way or to cause a certain result. A person acts purposely with respect to attendant circumstances if the person is aware of the existence of such circumstances or believes or hopes that they exist. The defendant's purpose or conscious object to use the firearm against another person or the property of another may be found to exist at any time he is in possession of the object and need not have been the defendant's original intent in possessing the object. The fourth element that the state must prove beyond a reasonable doubt is that the defendant had a purpose to use the firearm in a manner that was prohibited by law. I have already defined purpose for you. This element requires that you find that the state has proven beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant possessed a firearm with the conscious, objective, design, or specific intent to use it against the person or property of another in an unlawful manner as charged in the indictment and not for some other purpose. In this case, the state contends that the defendant's unlawful purpose in possessing the firearm was to use it to shoot Lauren Canarac and or shoot at Robert Goodwin. You must not rely upon your own notions of the unlawfulness of some other undescribed purpose of the defendant. Rather, you must consider whether the state has proven the specific unlawful purpose charged. The unlawful purpose alleged by the state may be inferred from all that was said or done and from all of the surrounding circumstances of this case. However, the state need not prove that the defendant accomplished his unlawful purpose in using the firearm. If you find that the state has failed to prove any of the elements of this crime beyond a reasonable doubt, your verdict must be not guilty. <clears throat> On the other hand, if you are satisfied that the state has proven each and every element of the crime charged beyond a reasonable doubt, your verdict must be guilty. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the final portion of his instructions, Judge Taylor offers the jury a framework for assessing Michael Barrison's defense that he is not guilty by reason of insanity. My ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to move on to the charge regarding insanity. Apart from his general denial of guilt, the defendant maintains that he is not guilty of the crimes charged in the indictment or the lesser included offense by reason of insanity. If you find that the state has failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt any essential element of the offense or the defendant's participation in the offense, you must find the defendant not guilty and you need not consider the evidence as to the defendant's insanity. If you find that the state has proved beyond a reasonable doubt each essential, uh, essential element of the offenses, either those charged in the indictment or the lesser included offense, and the defendant's participation in the offense, you must then consider evidence as to the defendant's insanity. All persons are assumed capable of committing crimes. Insane persons, however, are not capable of committing crimes. It is therefore necessary for me to instruct you with respect to the law of insanity, so far as it relates to the responsibility of a person for the commission of a crime. First of all, the law entertains no prejudice against the defense of insanity. On the contrary, if the defense of insanity is sufficiently established, the law allows the defendant the benefit of it by an acquittal of all criminal responsibility. To consider this defense, it is necessary that you understand the law's concept of criminal responsibility. Our society and our law recognize that some people may be bad and some people may be sick. A hostile act, that is an illegal act, may be one, may, uh, let, me, let me start over. <clears throat> A hostile act, that is an illegal act, may in one case spring from wickedness and in another from some infirmity or sickness of the mind which the individual did not design. It is society's moral judgment recognized by our law that a forbidden act should not be punished criminally unless done with a knowledge of wrongdoing. The law, however, from considerations of public policy, the welfare of society, and the safety of human life proceeds with care, requiring that the proof of such a defense of insanity be established consistent with a standard recognized by law. Under our law, all persons are assumed to be sane and therefore responsible for their conduct until the contrary is established. Insanity is an affirmative defense, and the burden of proving it by a preponderance of the evidence is on the defendant who asserts the defense. If there is no preponderance of evidence of insanity, the defense of insanity fails, and the defendant stands in the position of a sane individual responsible on all the evidence in this case for his, for his acts, whatever you may find them to have been. The law adopts a standard, standard of its own as a test of criminal responsibility a standard not always in harmony with the views of psychiatrists. If at the time of committing the act, the defendant was laboring under such a defect of reason from disease of the mind as, as not to know the nature and quality 
of the act he was doing, or if defendant did know it, that he did not know what he was doing was wrong, the defendant was then legally insane and therefore not criminal, criminally responsible for his conduct. As you can see, the law regards insanity as a disease of the mind. It may be temporary or permanent in its nature, but the condition must be a mental disease. An accused may have the most absurd and irrational notions on some subject. He may be unsound in mind and be a fit subject for confinement and treatment in a mental hospital. But if at the time of the offenses, defendant had the mental capacity to distinguish right from wrong and to understand the nature and quality of the act done by him, he is subject to the criminal law. These principles must necessarily be the governing principles in the administration of the criminal law, or the most terrible crimes would not be punishable, for such crimes are almost always committed under the influence of an impulse which overcomes the restraint which usually prevents the commission of a crime. Therefore, to establish insanity as a defense to the criminal charge in this case, the defendant must prove by a preponderance of the evidence that defendant, was, that defendant was laboring under such a defect of reason from disease of the mind as to know, uh, not know the nature and quality of the act, or if defendant did know it, that he did not know that what he was doing was wrong. The term preponderance of the evidence means a greater weight of credible evidence in this case. It does not necessarily mean the evidence of the greater number of witnesses, but means that evidence which carries the greater convincing power to your minds. Keep in mind, however, that although the burden rests upon the defendant to establish the defense of insanity by a preponderance of incredible evidence, the burden of proving a defendant guilty of the offense charge, the offenses charged here beyond a reasonable doubt is always on the state, and that burden never shifts. The question is not whether the defendant, when he engaged in the deed, in fact actually thought or considered whether the act was right or wrong, but whether the defendant had sufficient mind and understanding to have enabled him to comprehend that it was wrong if the defendant had used his faculties for that purpose. To determine whether the defendant has established by the preponderance of the credible evidence that at the time of the commission of the alleged offense, defendant, defendant was laboring under such a defect from disease of the mind as not to know the nature and quality of the act he was doing, or if defendant did know it, that he did not know what he was doing was wrong, you should consider all of the relevant and material evidence having a bearing on his mental condition, including his conduct at the time of the alleged act, his conduct since, any mental history, any lay and medical testimony, which you have heard from witnesses who have testified for the defense and for the state, and such other evidence by the testimony of witnesses or exhibits in this case that may have a bearing upon and assist you in your determination of the issue of his mental condition. There is a conflict of medical testimony, and you will have to determine where the truth lies. As is true with all issues of fact, the issue is for you to resolve after a careful consideration, comparison, and evaluation of all the evidence which is material to or relevant on the issue of defendant's sanity. The assumed sanity of the defendant is not overcome 
until you determine that the defendant has sustained his burden of proving by a preponderance of the evidence that at the time of the offense alleged, the defendant was insane under the legal definition of insanity and therefore is absolved of criminal responsibility for conduct for which he would otherwise be criminal, criminally responsible under the law. The jury is the sole judge of the weight to be given to lay and psychiatric testimony. Generally speaking, no distinction is made between expert testimony and evidence of another character. The same tests that are applied in evaluating lay testimony may be used in judging the weight and sufficiency of expert testimony. You are the sole judges of the credibility of the medical witnesses as well as all other witnesses and the weight to be accorded to the testimony of each. You saw and you heard them. You had the opportunity to observe their attitude and demeanor on the witness stand. You had the opportunity to hear their means of obtaining knowledge of the facts and to notice their power of discernment, their candor or evasion, if any, and their general and special professional and expert qualifications and background. These factors, any possible bias in favor of one side for whom each testified and any other matters would serve to illuminate the statements of each may all be considered by you in determining the credibility of the expert testimony and the weight to be accorded it or any part of it. The medical experts have testified that statements were made to them by the defendant, which statements were part of the history they secured from the defendant. As I have previously instructed you, these statements should not be considered as substantive evidence against the defendant relating to his guilt or innocence of the alleged offense, but only as evidence tending to support the ultimate expert conclusion of the psychiatrist or psychologist receiving the history on the test of insanity. The witness, in effect, is not saying that such history is true. The witness is merely testifying that the statements comprising the history were made to him. You may, in fact, determine from the evidence in this case that the facts set forth in such history are true, not true, or true in part only, and in light of such findings, you should decide what effect such determination has upon the weight to be given to the opinion of the expert. However, if a medical expert has testified that his opinion hinges upon the truth of the matter asserted by the defendant at the time the defendant gave the history to the doctor, the probative value of the psychiatrist's opinion or the psychologist's opinion will depend upon whether from all the evidence in the case you find that those facts are true. The same is true for any other facts relied upon by the expert. If the doctor has decided that he accepts as true certain facts on which the doctor bases his opinion, your acceptance or rejection of the doctor's opinion will depend to some extent on your findings as to the truth of these facts. With regard to the verdicts here, you may return one of three verdicts. The first is not guilty, the second is guilty, and the third would be not guilty by reason of insanity. If you find that the state has failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt all or any one of the essential elements of the offense or the defendant's participation in the offense, you must find the defendant not guilty. If you find that the state has proved beyond a reasonable doubt all the essential elements of the offense and the defendant's participation therein, and if you also find that the defendant has not established a defense of insanity 
to a preponderance of equitable evidence, then you must find the defendant guilty of the offense. If you find that the state has proved all the elements of the crime and the defendant's participation therein beyond a reasonable doubt, and if you also find that the defendant has established the defense of insanity by a preponderance of equitable evidence, your verdict must be not guilty by reason of insanity, and you shall so report and declare your verdict. A verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity does not necessarily mean that the defendant will be freed or that the individual will be indefinitely committed to a mental institution. Under our law, if you find the defendant not guilty by reason of insanity, it will then be for the court to conduct a further hearing and, among other matters, determine whether or not the defendant's insanity continues to the present and whether the defendant poses a danger to the community or to himself. The resolution of those issues will ultimately determine what appropriate restrictions need to be placed on the defendant. Thus, procedures exist to adequately provide for the defendant and to protect the public in the event the defendant is found not guilty by reason of insanity. Again, with regard to the verdicts, you may return one of three verdicts, not guilty, number two would be guilty, number three, not guilty by reason of insanity. I will now give you some information on the final part of these instructions on conducting your deliberations. There is nothing different in the way a jury is to consider the proof in a criminal case from that in which all reasonable peace persons treat any questions depending upon evidence presented to them. You are expected to use your own good common sense, consider the evidence for only those purposes for which it has been admitted, and give it a reasonable and fair construction in the light of your knowledge of how people behave. It is the quality of the evidence, not simply the number of witnesses that control. As I said before, any exhibit that has not been marked into evidence cannot be given to you in the jury room, even though it may have been marked for identification. Only those items marked in evidence can be given to you. Very shortly, you will go into the jury room to start your deliberations. I remind you that during deliberations, and in fact, any time that you are in the jury deliberation room, you must keep any cell phone, pager, anybody use pagers anymore? <laughs> or other communication device you may possess turned off. You want to apply the law as I have instructed uh, you, to the facts as you find them to be for the purpose of arriving at a fair and correct verdict. The verdict must represent the considered judgment of each juror and must be unanimous as to each charge. That means all of you must agree if the defendant is guilty, not guilty, or not guilty by reason of insanity on each charge. It is your duty as jurors to consult with one another and to deliberate with a view towards reaching an agreement if you can do so without violence to individual judgment. Each of you must decide the case for yourself, but do so only after an impartial consideration of the evidence with your fellow jurors. In the course of your deliberations, do not hesitate to re-examine your own views and change your opinion if convinced it is erroneous, but do not surrender your honest conviction as to the weight or effect of evidence solely because of the opinion of your fellow jurors or for the mere purpose of returning a verdict. You are not partisans. You are judges, judges of the facts. You may return on each crime charge a verdict of either not guilty, guilty, 
or not guilty by reason of insanity. Your verdict, whatever it may be as to each crime charged, must be unanimous. Each of the 12 members of the, of the deliberating jury must agree as to the verdict. To assist you in reporting a verdict, I have prepared a verdict sheet for you. You will have this with you in the jury room. You'll have the indictment. I will give you a copy of my charge, a full copy of it, so you can review the charge regarding any uh, aspects of the charge that I gave you. And you'll have a copy of the verdict sheet as well. The form is to be used to uh, report your verdict. And I did supply a copy of that to the state. Can you pull that up for us? as I review it with the jurors. I'll just scroll up a little bit, please. Five. The jury verdict form lists count one as attempted murder, and it lists not the entire charge in the indictment, but a portion of it to help guide your deliberations. And count one, uh, count 1A is the attempted murder as to Lauren Canarac, and it lists the possible verdicts, not guilty, guilty, not guilty by reason of insanity. If you answer guilty, or not guilty by reason of insanity on question question 1A, please go on to question 2A. If you answer not guilty, then you may go on and consider the lesser included offense of aggravated assault as set forth in question 1B. And that pertains to whether or not the defendant attempted or uh, did cause or attempted to cause serious bodily injury to Lauren Canterac. And again, the possible verdicts, if you reach that lesser included offense, would be not guilty, guilty, or not guilty by reason of insanity. Count two is the attempted murder charge as to the attempt to cause the death of Robert Goodwin. With regard to count two, possible verdicts as listed, not guilty, guilty, or not guilty by reason of insanity. As with count one, if you answer guilty or not guilty by reason of insanity on question 2A, Please then go to count three. If you answer not guilty on the attempted murder charge, then you can consider the lesser, lesser included offense of aggravated assault. And that's listed in question 2B. And again, your verdict's not guilty, guilty, or not guilty by reason of insanity. Question three pertains to count three, possession of a weapon for an unlawful purpose, as it pertains to a purpose to use it against a person or property of law and cataract. Again, your verdict's not guilty, guilty, or not guilty by reason of insanity. And then you consider, uh, finally, count four of the indictment charging possession of a weapon for an unlawful purpose to use against the person or property of Robert Goodwin. And once again, those verdicts are not guilty, guilty, or not guilty by reason of insanity. The jury, the verdict form that will go into uh, the jury will, will have a line for the signature of the person appointed or person. And when you have reached the verdict, the unanimous verdict, uh, please, the uh, foreperson will sign the verdict form and advise the court officer standing outside that you have reached the verdict. Please do ne never advise anyone where you may stand with regard to your verdict. They should only hear that you have a verdict and the foreperson who made that verdict in open court. Please listen to the oath and respond accordingly. Raise your right, right hands, please. Do you swear that you will do your best to keep every person sworn on this jury together in a private place and that you will not allow any person to speak to them, nor to speak to them yourself except by the order of the court, and only to ask, ask them if they have agreed upon a verdict until they have agreed? Have agreed? I do. I do. Hi, members of the deliberating jury. You may now retire to the jury room to commence your deliberations.
And with that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty. Join us on our next installment as we hear the jury's verdict in the trial of Michael Barrison. If you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracon. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and the trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrison.